0: Hello and welcome to the Eastgate Project Podcast. My name is Ed Ing. In a former life, I was a church pastor. One of the questions I get a lot is, how did I go from the life of marrying and burying the people of Jesus to what I do now as a psychologist? Perhaps that's a tale for another time, but sometimes people also ask me if I miss being a pastor. The answer? Depends what part. I don't miss long, pointless meetings, and I still hate them, and I don't miss veiled intrigues with otherwise respectable people, and I really don't miss the disappointment of people not living up to the facades they project. But one thing I really do miss is the preaching. If there's one thing that still does it for me in any given church service, it's a good sermon. And I admit, I'm really hard to please. But once in a while my brain fog clears just long enough for me to see a little more clearly by way of holy text. And sometimes that's enough for me to keep going just a little bit longer. I'm fortunate to be asked on occasion to preach. Most of the time I'm asked to talk about mental health or something like that, and I'm happy to do it. But I still enjoy the task of preaching, which isn't the same as regular teaching. Preaching for me is the act of participating in what God might want to say to the people he loves through the words that are written. Yes, I know a lot of people might say which words should be included as a product of some shadowy magisterium, but I know just enough about canonicity that I think what we've got is actually pretty good. I realize I'm going a bit out on a limb by sharing this, but on Palm Sunday this year, I was asked to deliver a sermon to my home church. And I say I'm going out in a limb because not every one of you likes churchy or Christiany kinds of things. But this was a sermon, what I think God was saying to me to say to the people, that was the product of some wrestling on my part. This is because this came out of a lot of people around me suddenly being diagnosed with cancer. And some of these experiences aren't going so well for some of them. These caused me to think a bit more about the place of dying in my life. Cancer is a weird one, because the people I know who have it, even the stage 4 kind, are all still alive. But it's as though they're walking in shadows. I think the last two plus years have been formative for our death-denying culture. It's not that COVID has been the deadliest disease to ever stalk humanity, but it's certainly scarred our consciousness. And in recent years, The ever-present threat of climate change has drawn up fear of the extinction of our species. Even here, in traditionally temperate British Columbia, we had a heat dome last year that resulted in hundreds of people dying. So, young or old, fit or failing, we have all had to face our dying. This is my attempt to reconcile some texts that have bugged me for a long time. And so, for what it's worth. Let me begin by reading from the account of Jesus' life, written by Mark, one of his followers. Reading from the 8th chapter, verse 31. He then began to teach them, he meaning Jesus, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up the cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. The second passage I want to read for you today also comes from Mark's account of Jesus' life, but this time a little later in the eleventh chapter, reading from verse eleven. As they, meaning Jesus and the disciples, approached Jerusalem, and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. I admit... I don't have much experience of death. The closest I have come to the death of a loved one was when my dog sighed out his last breath in front of me some 20 years ago. And that was hard. But the expected losses of parents and then same-aged peers hasn't really happened yet. But dying? The older I get, the more I perceive that what was said about youth is true. You believe that life and health stretches on forever. That your pants will always fit this way. That your hair will always remain in place. That your eyesight will always be laser keen. But if you are lucky enough to age, you will begin to note with some grim recognition that the old folks were right. Your joints creak. Your muscles snap. Your eyes don't focus. Playground swings were fun until they made you sick. I don't regret aging because there have been gifts of aging that I have received in the departure of my youth. Most of these gifts are relational. I'm less frantic and more patient than I used to be. But neither do I look forward to all of aging. No matter how you slice it, aging is dying. And those of us who are conscious of it are also conscious of the coming day when we'll also experience heart stop and brain stop. Death. So even though I don't have a whole lot of experience of actual death, by looking in the mirror every morning and seeing a relative stranger there, I'm becoming more familiar with dying. On Palm Sunday, we celebrate the beginning of Holy Week. On that day, there traditionally is an atmosphere of celebration as we read and remember Jesus as King. But if we are to enter into the mystery of Palm Sunday, It is that Jesus comes to and is welcomed into Jerusalem as king. But he does this in full view of what he proclaims in the first passage we read. That he will suffer and he will die. And we are told that he will be raised again. But if Jesus was aware even years before he was actually killed that he would be killed this way, one can imagine that as it was no surprise, he lived with a consciousness that he was dying. Now, I want very much to point us toward Easter Sunday, when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. This, for me, has increasingly become a focal point of my spiritual life. I mean, as long as I've been a follower of Jesus, I have known that the resurrection is important. But for the last several years, I have fallen onto it again and again as the reason I have for persevering in this faith. Yet even as much as we want to look ahead to the resurrection, we must first attend to the matter of dying. Because, like it or not, the resurrection is meaningless unless there first is the dying and death of the one we call the Christ. The two passages I've read today are a juxtaposition of times in Jesus' life where, on the one hand, he shows he has the keen awareness of his torture and execution. Yet a scant three chapters later, Jesus is welcomed into Jerusalem as king. If Mark's trademark breathlessness with which he writes is to be believed, Jesus is rushed from one scene of his life to the next. I don't know the mind of Christ in this one, but you'd have to wonder if his head wasn't spinning from the irony of going from rock star to worm. If you live long enough, you find more and more that we are asked to hold two truths at once. Where I find it hardest to hold two truths at once is when it comes to people. We tend to believe what we see and it takes more time than a five second appraisal to see through the seeming blessedness or disgrace of other people's lives. That this person seems like they have a perfect life but they struggle with crippling anxiety. That another person loves her husband but cheats on him with other men. That he can be a slave to a substance, but he feels remorse every time he rolls up his sleeve. Or, more personally, that I love my kids so deeply, but sometimes I really want to be alone. Or, more broadly, that God says he's active in the business of saving us, but that the world is still so full of evil, And so, between our two passages today, we have a glimpse of the ambiguity that marks Jesus' earthly ministry. On the one hand, the glory and celebration of the coming of our King. On the other, the solemnity and cautious hope of Easter. And even now, during a cold spring, we look forward to our common reward for enduring the gray Vancouver winter. Long, bright days Vibrant green trees and fields. The ripening of produce in our gardens. But we're not there yet. Not yet. I'd like to introduce a word for many of you today, and that is liminal. Liminal means that which is now and not yet. Betwixt and between. And on the threshold from one state to the next. And between these two texts we've read today, I want to suggest that the liminal space of dying not just the act of death itself, is where we meet the living God. It's easy to imagine that Jesus occupied a kind of liminal space for only his time in earthly ministry, except that's not quite the whole truth. It's more accurate to say that Jesus' pre-incarnation and with his Father in whatever dimension heaven is, eternally occupies this liminal or between space. In other words, Jesus has lived in this ambiguity between life and death since time immemorial. And we can see this in his revealed character together with the Father and the Holy Spirit. God is love, but that love is not passive and permissive. And he loves us, his wondrously ambiguous creation. Humans are made capable of such goodness, but also given the possibility of creating such evil. Humans are spectacularly bad with ambiguity, and that is precisely what dying is. Still alive, but aware that in time, these eyes will no longer see the ones we love, and these lungs will never again draw breath. And so because it is very difficult to live in the liminal space, many of us veer towards one extreme or another. And because death will happen to us all just as surely as our birth has already happened, We, too, live in liminality, whether we acknowledge it or not. But when we veer towards ignorance, we shortchange ourselves of meaning and richness in life. I remember very well when my older boy began to contemplate death. He was three years old, and it was summer. We were having dinner, and seemingly from nowhere, he looked up at his mother and asked, Mama, when are you going to die? My wife and I exchanged a long look. We try really hard to be honest with our kids, and so she answered, I don't know. He asked again, is it going to be when I'm grown up? My wife answered, I don't know, hopefully. He began to get a little tearful. Will you be alive tomorrow? Honesty is hard, but she forged on with it. I don't know. I hope so. Our older boy doesn't typically cry very much, so when he does, it's usually for a really good reason. And it was at that moment that he began to sob. And between sobs, he asked, But Mama, if you die, who will be my special girl? I know much has been written about purity and suffering, and I try not to go in for that, as suffering is terrible, not beautiful. And yet as much as his sadness that day was incredibly sad, I hold that memory of that moment close to my heart as that suffering he experienced was precious and therefore should be honored. It may be that at the age of three he couldn't yet grasp the intricacies of the death of loved ones, but the thought of being separated from us was the beginning of a life in liminal space. Where on the one hand he has a whole life of possibility ahead of him, but on the other Life will inevitably end for him as it does for all of us in the closing of those possibilities and of our eyes for a final time. It was painful to have him start to prepare for death, but I have to say the contemplation of death has not been a bad thing for him. In the years since then I've enjoyed his perception that life is all the more good by savoring what is good and full knowledge of the transitory nature of creation. In other words, he knows time is short. Get busy living or get busy dying. My prayer for him in this is that in this liminal space, the rest of his life, he grows wisdom and discernment. As I've said, there is something about human nature that shies away from ambiguity, especially in times of stress. We much prefer yes-no or right-wrong answers because these appear to give us solid foundations upon which we build our lifestyle. For example, many of us were raised with the idea that as long as we stay in school, avoid drugs, and find jobs, happiness, and fulfillment would follow. But as many of us have done all these things and more, and yet grapple with acute meaning of life issues and anxiety and depression that come with it, we know it's not as easy as that, if it ever was easy to play the game. Those of us who did our lives the so-called right way know that wasn't easy coming up. But we need to ask ourselves, to what end do we play the game? We used to call it keeping up with the Joneses, or as I like to call it in Vancouver, keeping up with the Chans. This attitude, though, is one of acquiring of one thing after another, whether it be a degree or a spouse or a career or a home, yet this mentality is largely unconscious We breathe it in the air and drink it in our water as part of the idea that this is how life should go. But what are we striving towards when we acquire or train or grow? Maybe feelings of mastery over life, feeling as though we've made it. Maybe feeling better about ourselves as we couldn't possibly be bad people as long as we're driving nice cars. Maybe it's less individualistic and more interdependent. Maybe doing well by our culture standards brings expressions of pride from our parents and respect from our peers. But what if the point of entering this liminal space in this life is to grow us in the courage to let it all go? Extended time and contemplation of liminality grows in us an appreciation for the brevity of life and the gifts that aging can bring. It is natural that when we contemplate our deaths while we are dying, that we begin to feel fear over what happens next. For some, like me, that fear led to a flight into Jesus as Lord and Savior, because I believe in what he says about himself and the frame of reality he espouses. For others, the only solution is to medicate away that fear with substances or experiences or busyness a hedonistic response that Vancouver people love. And for some, the thought of being part of something good, a collective human project for actualization, is what keeps the terror of death at bay. The promise of a utopia is what keeps many keeping on with endless and exhausting activism. In 1973, the American anthropologist Ernest Becker published a Pulitzer Prize-winning book called The Denial of Death, which was published while he was actually faculty at SFU. Interestingly enough, Becker died from colon cancer a year later, and the Pulitzer Prize was given posthumously. The main thesis of the denial of death is that human beings are aware of death in only a faint way. I say faint because we like to keep it that way, out of full view in the periphery, we don't really give our death much thought because, especially in a modern context, we have all kinds of things to keep us from thinking about it. And one of the reasons my practice has been full for the last few years is because we all have been faced with pandemic silence. And in that silence, many of us begin to face what lies beneath. And what was once in the periphery now inescapably demands our full attention. When we get down to it, death is a terrifying thing for many. It ends the comfort of wealth, if you have it. It ends the enjoyment of beauty. It ends conversations, communities, and the underlying relationships. And so because of the terror of death and how it renders all of our achievements meaningless, we strive for what Becker calls an immortality project. He goes so far as to say that our achievements, being summed up in the construction of civilization, are there to distract us from the inevitability of death. For it is when we are confronted with the end that so much of what we strive for in this life, whether it be wealth or fame or love, that our pursuits are shown to be empty and meaningless. Even for me, the one thing I spend the most time being outside of my paid work is a father. And there will come a time, too, when my children will die. And any sort of evolutionary urge to perpetuate my genes is also rendered incoherent by this reality. Thus, for all of us, the terror of death. But even as death itself can evoke terror, we more often have an even greater difficulty with dying. You see, dying is not the same as death, because death is the instance in which we cease to draw breath and our neurons stop firing. But dying? Dying is that long, slow walk that becomes a stoop, and then a crawl back down to earth. It is the gradual loss of strength, of quickness, of vitality, and the self-assurance that these bring. Yet to keep ourselves from grieving these losses, we often choose instead to go with the flow of our culture. Many of us become caught up in our immortality projects without stopping to wonder why. Take, for example, the way most of us have had to spend years, if not decades, in school. I can tell you that as a father to two young school aged children who actually do just fine at school, it still is a struggle to have them go through the training that school requires. Being on time, being organized, being focused, obeying teachers, getting along with classmates. And I will say without any equivocation that when they ask why they have to do all these things, it is because their mother and I know that many long years of schooling remain for them. Not just this, but life outside of school requires all of these things. Yet all of these skills make the schooling to come all that much easier. In other words, in some ways, they are being trained now for more education in the future. To what end? so that they might be able to make the most of their intelligence. And why should they do that? Maybe to get a good job? Maybe to make more money? Maybe to live more comfortably? This is the narrative that many of us were given to live, without question, and still do to this day. In so doing, we live unconsciously, responding only to the next hoop, the next task, without ever stopping to think through how the commandments to love God and our neighbors might inform the way we live. I do try to disrupt this cultural impulse in my children's life, even as I affirm the need to become accustomed to the system. I do this by reminding them that the world that God loves is also a world in need, and that we are to serve the needs of others with what we've been given. But what this can mean is that we are to let go of private immortality projects, such as becoming wealthy for its own sake. Instead, we work in the world as salt and light, as salt to preserve what is good and bring out the good, and as light so that we may all see more clearly. But along the way, we all must learn wisdom from walking in the liminal space between birth and death. We must hold tight to the impermanence of everything, including ourselves, and the meaning that the phrase, remember you are dust, and to dust you shall return, has upon us. Not just during Lent, the forty days before Easter, but for our entire lives. Yet in order to do this, we must overcome fear of death, at least in part and the only way to overcome fear of death is to look it squarely in the eye and prepare for it as often as we remember it. There is something about the experience of fear itself that keeps us from contemplating the things that make us afraid. I often compare this to an experience that a lot of us have had when we are little, and that is being afraid of the dark. And if you were ever, or still are, afraid of the dark, you remember waking up at night and seeing shadows lurking around your room is that a vampire? Is that a ghost? And as most kids do, maybe you'd burrow deeper into your blankets, hoping that morning would come all the sooner, because blankets, as we all know, will ward off monsters. But as I tell clients all the time, processing our fear means turning on the light, and seeing once and for all that those shadows and shapes were a pile of clothes or your desk. The paradoxical nature of fear is that once we turn the light on and contemplate the object of our fear, it loses some of its power over us. A pile of clothes is just a pile of clothes. Looked at plainly, death is but a doorway from one state to the next. The invitation of our texts today is a strange one because we are invited into the liminality of Jesus' life. And as we who follow Jesus and draw our life from him will do, we are also asked to do as he did, and that is to love well and work for the good of others, all the while knowing that we will die. If you were to Google Palm Sunday and search through images of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem through the East Gate, you would mostly see what I found. In the vast majority of artists' imaginings over this, Jesus looks a little like he's brooding. It looks as though his eyes don't quite see the crowd. They look up and into the distance, perhaps the artist's way of indicating that if you were to enter the East Gate and travel west through Jerusalem, you would be traveling in the direction of Golgotha, the place of the skull, the place outside the city where criminals were crucified. I did find one image of Jesus smiling, a still from a movie, but even the actor portraying Jesus in that image looks like he's a little embarrassed to be there. I think all of this is appropriate. How else would you react if you knew that in a few days' time you would be tortured to death? Yet it is to the cross that Jesus faithfully and obediently goes. It takes great courage to live so kindly and lovingly in the face of death. Taking up the courage to carry out what we know is good and right even as we journey through the shadowlands is a strength that should be celebrated. Perhaps this is a new spirit in which we can celebrate Palm Sunday. We often think that courage is something that is done in the spur of the moment, like the hero who dives across the stage taking a bullet, like the woman who pushes the stroller out of the way before the car crashes in. But what if we thought of courage, real courage, as the fortitude to bear with a long and gradual decline, to be present and fully engaged in our dying? What effect might this have on our lives? we would see, I think, the revelation of this kind of quiet strength and daily daring that only comes from accepting that we are dying. Two of the most common mental health issues in the world are anxiety and depression, with anxiety recently overtaking depression to become the most prevalent psychiatric diagnosis. It is something of a running joke for most mental health clinicians when people ask you your specialties and you say, anxiety and depression, because that's what we all see all the time. And I think there are good reasons for why anxiety has become the most prevalent mental health disorder. For one, I think the spread of bad news via the internet makes the world seem heavier and more chaotic. You and I are updated every five minutes with real-time footage of all the cruelty and neglect of a barely restrained and sinful humanity. And for another, we do absolutely live at a precipice of a time with climate change, international conflict, affordability, and novel viruses that insist on our attention. The better question to ask is not how can we have anxiety, but rather how can one not have anxiety when choosing to live in full view of these? The answer is that fear and sadness are normal given the reality of our dying, whether it is the dying of our planet or the dying of our socio political framework. Or the dying of our bodies. But the call of Christ to this liminal space means a call to bear our sadness and our fear and to let it let them shape the way we live our lives. I'm not sure I'm not dying faster than usual as I experience myself being in good health, but I have found it useful to contemplate the ephemerality of everything, even in the people I love. I often think about what it might be like to sleep in an empty bed. And not hear my wife talk in her sleep. I make sure to kiss my sons and tell them I love them, for who can say if that is not the last we'll see of each other? I fix in my mind all the time the memory of the presence of my wife and children, the way the morning light plays in their faces, the sounds of their voices, the feeling of their hands in mine. I savor these things, These are my most beloved on earth, and I hold these images tightly, for there may also be a time when this may be all I have left of them. And, as I am dying, I pour myself into work I find meaningful and good. When I was young, I aspired to do more because I wanted others to think well of me. And though that is still part of all that I do, Awareness of my liminality has grown in me something different. Now, I increasingly aspire to do more with what I have, not for self-actualization, but on the chance that the bread and fish that I have might be multiplied for the relief of many. Do not waste your dying. Let it grow in you the wisdom to live fully while you yet have daylight and even as the sun inevitably will set it on our lives, may it be for you a good rest for a long labor in liminal space. This has been the Eastgate Project Podcast. My name is Ed Ng. Thank you for listening.